Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, which is a presenting sponsor of Recode Media. You know what's not smart? Taking selfies while you're driving. You know what is smart? Hiring with ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on Trustpilot rating of hiring sites with over a thousand reviews. Now our listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, but I am not Peter Kafka. I'm Kara Swisher, the editor-at-large of Recode and the host of Recode Decode. Peter is out this week, so in a minute, I'm going to pass the microphone to Casey Newton. But first, here's your weekly reminder. Tell someone else about this show. Thanks. That's all I've got for now. I'll be back later in the show to read some ads. Take it away, Casey. Thank you, Kara. I am here today with Christopher Best, the co-founder of Substack. Christopher, welcome to Recode Media. Thanks for having me. Can I just call you Chris? That's way easier. Um, <laughs> by the way, Chris Best, pretty incredible CEO name. Oh, thank you. Is that a real name? I, I worked hard on it. <laughs> uh, we workshopped it. We had some focus groups. No, that's my name. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, well, cool. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. I am a big fan of email newsletters. Last year, I started my own daily email about social networks and democracy, which is called The Interface, uh, which we also publish on The Verge. But uh, I have learned a lot uh, over that past year about um, the power of writing a daily email and kind of cultivating an audience. And so I wanted to talk to you about Substack. So for folks who may not yet be familiar with what you're doing, tell us what Substack is. So Substack really simply is a platform for readers to pay writers directly. And what that looks like is basically a paid email newsletter. So you know about the power of the email newsletter as a way to reach people. You know, you come directly into their inbox. You're not mediated by some algorithm, by some anything. And we just add a really straightforward, like, you can pay for it. Right. That's the, that's the Cole's Notes, which is a simple idea, but it, I think there's actually quite a profound sort of implication of that once you start to take money and, and have like a real sort of financial relationship between the reader and the writer. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, email is an old technology, and I want to acknowledge that during this interview, it's going to sound a lot like I think that email was just invented, and I know that that, that is not true. So let me <laughs> first this say— thing where you can send yeah. electronic messages, get this, <laughs> right. to anybody in the world. Yeah, so, you know, let, let me say, I know people have been sending email newsletters for a very long time, and, and probably some of those have been paid newsletters in, in some way. But I do feel like something new is going on that I think is related to various changing ways that that smart people in particular have decided to get their news. So let's maybe dig in there. Uh, before y'all, you and your co-founders started Substack, what were you seeing in the market that made you want to build a new business around it? I think the most important thing was just sort of a general frustration with how much control over we have over our own attention, mm. right? So my theory on this is that it used to be that you uh, had too much attention and you would get bored and you had to like spend money to find things to fill your time. And sometime in the age of social media, that's completely flipped around where attention is your last finite resource. And you're not looking for things. You're never bored. You're always constantly addicted to things. And now the next thing that you aspire to is regaining control of your time and your attention. And email newsletters are a way to do that. Right. What is it about email that makes you feel like they help you regain that focus? 
So I think one thing is it's it's conscious. You're making the choice. You decide what email newsletters to subscribe to, and then it sort of shows up. And what's more, you make that decision kind of like not in the heat of the moment, right? Like you're your best self sitting on a Sunday afternoon kind of thinking about what email newsletter do I want to subscribe to, not like going for one more scroll in your Twitter timeline on the toilet because you're angry, right? right? It's kind of a different method of making that decision. Yeah. Something else that uh, it, it seems to me that is going on is there is a general decline of trust in social feeds. So whereas two, three years ago, I think most of us felt a lot more comfortable getting the bulk of our news from a Facebook, from a Twitter, uh, from other social networks. And uh, lately there's been kind of a reckoning over social media and we're not as certain that if we see a link in the feed, you know, was that put there by a real person or was it put there by a Russian bot? Right. And we don't like, we don't necessarily like the way that it makes us, it makes us feel. Right. Yeah. It's not just a decline in trust. There's a reason for the decline in trust. Yeah, I do. Want, I mean, it, it seems to me that if you are cultivating an audience via email, you may not have to rely on the same sorts of tricks that we used to have to rely on to get people's attention on a Facebook. Right. Uh, I don't know that there would be a way to quantify that. But I guess anecdotally, are, are people doing sort of less clickbait in their in their subject lines? Yeah, I mean, you can you can put a, you, you still want to have an interesting subject line for a newsletter so that people open it. But kind of that fundamental effect that you see on social media where you can get virality by just making people angry doesn't work in a newsletter. People right. don't subscribe to a newsletter because they're angry. Right. But they do absolutely share a tweet because they're angry. Yeah, that, that's interesting. You know, we were sort of talking earlier about, you know, what, what you saw in the market. I saw something else that I wondered if this was on y'all's minds at all. Um, when Axios came along, unlike most new media companies, they actually had a somewhat novel distribution strategy, which was that they were going to hire a bunch of stars and get them to write newsletters. And while I think their strategy has turned out to be slightly less newsletter-centric than I think they originally planned it to be, it was a very effective strategy for, for getting them attention early on. And it definitely influenced me as I was starting to think about trying to build an email audience. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't underestimate how important email still is to, to what they're doing. But I think you raise a really good point. This is another thing that is part of sort of our core thought process for Substack, which is that people trust people, right? There's a thing where where especially now that you can have an email newsletter that reaches out to people and you can charge for it, you know, part of what I'm paying for or what I'm paying for isn't the content, right? The internet did make content free. It did kind of break that whole thing. What I'm actually paying for if I pay for an email newsletter or even if I just subscribe to it and I pay with my time is I'm paying for this ongoing relationship I have with you. I start to trust you. I start to feel like you're in my brain and I can consult you about things. And that is valuable regardless of whether, you know, I'm trying to click on an individual article and pay for it or whatever. Yeah, that, that's true. And uh, I think there's a kind of secondary point there, which is that email is interactive in a way that articles aren't. Um, something that I have noticed is that people will frequently write to me just to say, hey, Casey, thanks for the newsletter or nice newsletter today. Just sort of three quick words. No one in the history of The Verge has ever created an account to just go in and write nice story, Casey. You know, right. like there, there have been some like nice comments under there, but there's, there's sort of this sense of intimacy, yeah. I think, that comes from being in someone's inbox. And how often does somebody hit reply to just tell you that you're an asshole? <laughs> right, very little. Very, very little. little, and yet yeah. that, you know, in other mediums, that happens all the time. It's just this the, the, the context under which you're interacting 
uh, changes everything, which is something that fascinates me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the fact that the message is private just changes it completely, exactly. right? Because people love to, you know, make fun of you in public, but if they know that only you are going to see it, it, it weirdly removes all incentive to do yeah. it. This is, one of, this is one of the things that I'm sort of weirdly nerdy about. So before Substack, I was a CTO and co-founder of a messenger called Kick that was a big popular sort of messaging yes. app. And this is like the main thing that I learned while making a messenger is like the way that you structure people's interactions action can absolutely change the entire outcome of any kind of social system. And so say more about that. So how were the the interactions structured on on Kick, which you know remains a pretty big messaging app. Yeah, no, I mean it's and and there's lots of little things that we did that that made things made things better and made and made things work. One thing that was that worked really early on, something that isn't novel now but uh, sort of worked surprisingly well at the time was when we first introduced you to your friends on Kick. Uh, instead of just giving you a message that said, you know, you can match your address, but can say, which of my friends are on kick? Instead of just giving you a message that said, by the way, your friend Casey's on kick, we'd like open a conversation with you with Casey. And there's a conversation there. There's already a message. So it kind of feels like the ice is broken. It's the exact same information content. Mm-hmm. And yet it's like night and day in how people engage with it. It, ch- it changes the, the whole growth curve of a company. Huh. Just one tiny change. Yeah, so you sort of make it a, a friendlier place to chat, and next thing you know, you have a lot of friendly chats going on, and maybe email is, is creating a, a similar vibe, at least as opposed to a, a standard web-based article. Yeah, I mean, it feels, as you say, it feels like a personal relationship in the way that reading an article online does not. Yeah. So talk to me about some of the pioneers here. Like, who is actually out there doing this, making real money, like making a living, sending paid email newsletters? Yeah, I mean, so one of the, one of the people that sort of inspire the company and is not on Substack is obviously Ben Thompson, who writes Stratechery, which is kind of this must-read tech-focused thing. And, you know, I, I've subscribed to him since before we started the company. This is part of the thing. We're like, could it really be just this simple? Yeah. And, you know, he's been telling people uh, I, more people should do this. It's a really good model. And we're like, huh, maybe we just made that really easy. Um, but now there's also a ton of people that are on the platform that are that are making it work. I mean, we've got Bill Bishop, who also writes for Axios, or, <laughs> interestingly, and he's got this sort of focused newsletter about China. Like, what the heck is going on in China for international business and government audience? People like people feel like they can't live without it. Uh, and we've got this. We've got a, a pretty big range of people. You know, one of the things I wondered early on is like, is this only going to work for? sort of business type stuff, right? right? Like news you can use. You're a VC, you can subscribe to Stratechery. You know, you're a CEO, you should subscribe to Cynicism. Um, but we've also got uh, the Shatner Chatner by Daniel Orberg, which is sort of like absurdist literary comedy, I think is maybe the best way to describe it. That I think the audience is mostly librarians or, or, or largely constituted by librarians. Uh, we've got just a sort of a, an interesting variety of things. We've got a serial novel called The Business Secrets of Drug Dealing that's about... Uh, how to be a successful, or it's nominally about how to be a successful drug dealer. There's just this sort of wealth of weirdness that's happening on the platform that warms my heart. Yeah. And uh, I mean, certainly like Ben Thompson seems like he's doing very well. And I think, you know, Bill Bishop is, is doing well. I mean, is it fair to say it is still somewhat unproven how many uh, entrepreneurs can get out there and, and make a real living doing this? Like, is this probably going to wind up being more of like a, a supplemental thing than a primary income for people? I think it's fair to say that it's unproven how many there are. What's not unproven is that it can work exceptionally well for some people. And the thing that convinces me that this is something that's not just kind of like a niche, oh yeah, there's some kind of wonks out there that'll pay for crazy stuff, is is that underlying trend we are talking about before, where people are starting to value their time more and more. Like readers, 
your time is worth something. And so at some point, it's like irrational if you don't want to spend your money to use your time and attention better. And so I actually think the reverse. I think this is like the seed of a model that will become a dominant model in media. Yeah. Uh, which is the main reason I wanted to have you on here was just sort of like ferret out whether I think that's true. I sort of do think that's true, but I, I wanted to see what you, a person who's actually bet your entire life on it, has to say about well, it's it. it's not as exciting if you think it's true. You, <laughs> should, you should take the devil's advocate position here. I know. That would be the Peter Kafka thing to do. Come on, who's going to gonna pay for email? That's ridiculous. <laughs> well, I have some of those questions, but um, I, I want to I draw a comparison that, that uh, and see if you think it makes sense. Because sure. the, more I, the more time I spend with email newsletters, the more it reminds me of how how podcasting felt in like 2006, totally. where the technology is there, the early adopters are doing it, but we're still a few serials and S towns and the dailies away from a big breakthrough. Do you see parallel? And I, I should say the other big point of comparison is that podcasts can get super niche in the exact same mm-hmm. way yep. that an email can get super niche. So the reason you listen to a podcast is because there's no other media source that you know lets you um, hear about knitting on a weekly basis in the way that a podcast can can get you. And I feel like an email newsletter does that exact same thing. Yeah, no, I think there's a very much a parallel. Also, in as I said, the way that you subscribe, right? You sit back and you choose to subscribe to a podcast right. and then those podcasts show up in your feed. You know, you don't, it's, it's not like the radio where you just put it on and you t- consume whatever comes. You sit there and you decide, hey, I'm going to spend, and podcasts, even more than newsletters, are a huge time investment. I'm going to spend an hour listening to the Recode Media podcast. Like, I have to think about that. And so it's this, that's sort of, that, that's the cause of a lot of those those things that I think you're describing. And I think it, it is kind of directly analogous. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and a reason why I think you might even be more optimistic uh, over the long run about this than, than podcasting is just that email has that built-in viral mechanic of you can forward it to somebody, right? It's like so much easier to get somebody to sign up for your email uh, than it is to get them to download a podcast. Yeah, and I, I'm also sort of bullish on podcasts. I mean, I think that podcast kind of usage is increasing, increasing, and it's breaking into the mainstream. And monetization, even for podcasts, maybe has not totally caught up to where it should be. Right. And I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of commonalities of, of the kind of things that work. So let's talk about uh, the kinds of money that people are making. Uh, wh- what is the range of prices that people can charge these days for a, a successful email newsletter? So you can charge. I mean. There's a whole range of prices you can charge. We actually set a minimum. We said, hey, look, you should charge five bucks a month or more, which sounds kind of high. And the reason we did that is because we kind of wanted to focus on people who were going to do it with a certain degree of seriousness and try to create like sort of above a minimum threshold of value. And five bucks a month, yeah, it sounds like a lot to pay for like a digital thing, but it's like it's it's like getting one fancy coffee a month. It's actually not that much money. Right. Uh, and so we see people charging all the way from, you know, five bucks a month up to, I think, 30 bucks a month is probably the highest uh, monthly price we have right now. And I think that, that that's not that's not some absolute limit. I think you can have prices that go up and up. Right. So at those prices, you know, if five bucks a month, sure, uh, that might just be a fun thing about a, a writer you really like or a subject that you're particularly interested in. I think once you get above 10 bucks a month, you're you're sort of in that Netflix price range, sure. uh, which I think can be a scary place to be in the sense that 
man, Netflix gives people a lot. And so for me, at least, they've really sort of anchored that price in my mind of like, if you're going to charge me 10 bucks a month for something, like you better be giving me an ocean of content. And if you're writing a, a weekly newsletter for 10 bucks a month, like that doesn't seem like as good of a deal. I totally see why why you would say that and why people think of it that way. I actually think that's the wrong way to think about it. Um, you know, the right way to think about it, especially when you get into these things that, as you say, are kind of niche, is the model where you pay for stuff allows you to get something that's this perfect niche thing that's just right for you. The reason Netflix can charge you 10 bucks a month is because they have millions and millions and whatever it is, hundreds of millions of, I don't know how many subscribers they have. A, a lot. lot. And... You know, yeah, sure, you can get it for 10 bucks a month, but maybe you are like the ultimate board game fanatic. And if there was like a publication that was about the like internal nitty gritty of like making and playing high end board games, blah, blah, like something that's just like completely up your sort of nerdy alley, that might be worth more than 10 bucks a month to you. And the only way it's going to exist is if there's a community of people out there that are kind of willing to pay for that. And so this model allows things to exist that otherwise never could in like an ad-supported model or something else. Right. I mean, it, what we're, we're really almost like talking about zines now, right? I mean, it's, or like magazines. Yeah. And there's, I mean, history repeats itself. These, none, of this yeah. is, n- none of this is new technology <laughs> or new ideas, really. Right. It's just kind of like the right sort of <laughs> cultural moment for it, I think. All right. Well, I think that is a good moment to take a break. Here's Kara Swisher with a word from our sponsors. Thanks, Casey. Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, which is a presenting sponsor of Recode Media. You know what's not smart? Tweeting about politics while on Ambien. But you know what is smart? Using ZipRecruiter to hire for your business. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Their powerful technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. Then ZipRecruiter spotlights the top candidates for your job so you never miss out on a great match. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on Trustpilot rating of hiring sites with over a thousand reviews. Now our listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com Peter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, this is Jason Del Rey from Recode. I'm the commerce editor here, so I write a lot about where and how people are shopping today. This September in New York City, I'm putting together a live event about those questions, and I'd love for you to be there. It's called Code Commerce, and I'm going to be on stage with Recode's Kara Swisher, interviewing some of the most important people in the e-commerce and retail industries. We'll be talking to entrepreneurs and executives from companies like Instacart, Macy's, Square, Instagram, Crate and Barrel, Glossier, and more. In addition to the interviews, your ticket to Code Commerce also gets you into some special behind-the-scenes tours at Casper, Macy's, PayPal, Flight Club, and a few others. Once again, the name of the event is Code Commerce, and it's taking place September 17th and 18th in New York City. You can learn more and register now at recode.net slash events. Back to you, Casey. Thanks, Kara. I'm back here with Christopher Best. He says I can call him Chris, so I'm going to do it. Chris, uh, all right, so let's say people sign up for bunches of paid newsletters and maybe some free ones as well. I guess that's a, maybe a question I said. Do you guys enable free newsletters as well? Yeah, we actually yeah. did uh, turn that feature on. We let people do it. Um, just because it's 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 a nice feature for the platform to have. I mean, we had a bunch of people that were coming over from sort of Tiny Letter and other services and just wanting a good kind of like simple editorial newsletter product. And for us, we like we love doing it because we like giving things to writers that are doing good things. And also it's lead gen for us, right? right. Like you have someone that's got a very 
a popular free newsletter. We can see how much it's being delivered. We can go to them and say, hey, if you charge for this, you'd be making real money. And it's sort of a good yeah. <laughs> case for itself from our perspective. <laughs> yeah. And I think that people want a way to uh, try this out without necessarily committing to doing totally. it for ever. And as you know, you know, building up a subscriber, a free subscriber list for an email newsletter is really hard. Yeah. Right? Like it's not, it's not even the, I mean, charging is hard, but, but just building up an audience of people that want to read it for free is actually kind of the, the more important barrier. Yeah. Uh, and so letting people do that and kind of like cross that chasm uh, without charging anything is, is useful. It's so true. I, I think about this all the time now. So, you know, my, my newsletter is called The Interface. I'm going to try not to talk about it, you know, too much on this newsletter. You can subscribe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, uh, go to theverge.com slash interface and we'll sign you up. But, um, you know, it's basically a daily newsletter about social networks, focused on social networks and democracy, kind of, uh, you know, what does the government uh, have to say about Facebook and Twitter? Uh, and, how, and how are these companies affecting the way that our sort of body politic operates? These are very important topics. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's like a, a long way of describing it. Another way of describing it is it's a daily column about Facebook, which is like kind of how I think about it. And in my mind, like this company has 2.2 billion users. How hard could it be to sign people up to get a, a free daily email about, you know, the most interesting things happening at that company? And, you know, in about eight months, like just yesterday, I hit 4,000 subscribers. So I feel Thank good about that. Thank you. I feel good about that. Uh, but it's like not that many subscribers when you think about, you know, the average post on The Verge gets, you know, maybe 10 times that. Uh, so there are definitely challenges with people building up subscriber bases, as you note, even when you're giving it away for free, is that something you've started to think about helping your your writers with? And like, what, what things can a company like yours do for them? Yeah. And this is one of the things that we we focus on a lot. I mean, my, my pitch to writers is, you know, come on Substack. We'll do everything for you except the hard part, where the hard part is write a newsletter that's actually interesting enough that people want to read it. But a big part of that, obviously, is making it so that if the content is there, that people can find out about it. And so, you know, we do stuff like when you publish an issue, you know, it goes to email, obviously, but it also automatically shows up on the web. And, you know, the, all of the search engine stuff is there so that it can get discovered and it's easy to share. And, like, there's, you know, share buttons where you can do it. And if you forward the email, we kind of construct everything so that it works that way. Um, I think we're actually only sort of tapping the very beginning of what we need to do in that area because, as you say, this is, like, one of the main kind of problems. But the cool thing about it is that from our observations, if you're writing something that genuinely people find useful, it does tend to grow. Yeah. And it doesn't tend to grow in sort of like the the crazy hockey stick tech company, you know, I did a messenger and I added a viral feature and here it goes. But as like an editorial product, if you're kind of putting out something that's regular and consistently good, there is kind of this basal growth rate that happens when people are like, no, I've actually been reading the interface and it's helping me. Like, you should you should check it out. It's actually good. Yeah. Like, here's where my smart opinions come from. Right. And so our job, we see it as really to just kind of like supercharge that, like just give as many sort of avenues for that as possible yeah. and make sure that all of the kind of like built-in loops where people tell each other about it work really well. And then there's some other stuff that we're sort of really interested in, like, you know, are there, once you're charging for it, are there ways that you can do paid advertising and have that pay for itself? Because, I mean, the lifetime value of a subscriber is pretty pretty good. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, it's interesting to think about your point that you make sure that everything you publish gets published to the web. And that's something that we didn't say that we should, is this kind of move toward editorial newsletters is 
only possible because of the web. Most of the people who are writing these newsletters are linking to things on the web. The email really, I mean, it is a curated view of the web at a time when the web has become completely unmanageable, right? And where you're going to have plenty of feeds in your life sort of suggesting things at you. But if you're the sort of person who knows what you like and you know what you want to be smart about, uh, there ought to be a place where you go where you can sort of get that delivered to you directly. Right. And at the same time, you know, that used to be blogs, right? Like people would remember, they'd have a certain number of blogs that they would remember. They would go and surf the web and they'd go to the blogs. And now we live in a world where you open your smartphone and you have a certain number of apps that you go to. And if you're not, if the things you want aren't in one of those apps, you're just going to forget about it, right? So this is why Facebook and Twitter are such powerful sources of traffic. And it just happens that your email client is another one of those apps that you already click on. Right. Um, it's it's sort of like this p- very practical, like it's it's the you know it's the one channel that you have as say an independent writer to reach a reader base that's not directly mediated by a third party that doesn't have a Facebook algorithm deciding what people are going to see. Uh, it's the last kind of like open channel, even though it's all old and crafty and a pain to work with as a developer. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, and and maybe we should talk about that. I I remember Ben Thompson said to me once that. You know, the reason that he does emails is because it's the only feed that he can h- insert himself into for free. Right. Uh, which is a sort of a, you know, elegant way, I think, of, of making that point. Um, so, yeah, still a, still a really good distribution channel. Um, so, uh, you know, a- another point that I think is sort of worth talking about as we talk about, you know, is this uh, moment for editorial newsletters kind of like podcasts in 2006 – I can remember in the early days of blogging, everyone would start a blog, and then their second blog post would always say, hey, guys, sorry you haven't heard from me in a while. Things have gotten really busy <laughs> around here. And then that would always be the last post on the blog, right? And email newsletters, I'm starting to see the same thing, where uh, you know people on Twitter are announcing, hey, I've started my newsletter. You can subscribe here. And I do subscribe because I like seeing what people are up to. And then the second letter comes, you know, like three months later. It's like, wow, like, sorry, I haven't been around here for a while. But I actually think it's like, it's a good sign that the medium is hitting that moment of everyone at least wanting to try it out. Yeah. And something that that tells you is, as you know, well, is that doing a good day, especially a daily email newsletter is a ton of work. That's not like a, that's not something you kind of like do as a side project and it just kind of trucks along. Like if you want to make that go, you got to invest a lot of time in it. And when you do, it can be quite valuable for people. And, you know, this is part of why we think, hey, sometimes the right answer for that is to like charge money for it and make it a real, make it a real priority. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. You know, on that point, like daily versus weekly newsletter, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about this. The reason that I decided to do a daily newsletter was because if you do a daily newsletter, you're actually doing a job for people. I feel like anybody can put together a weekly newsletter of like, here here are 10 interesting links about Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. But to sort of come in every day and say, here's basically everything that happened today, and here it is in the order that it mattered, then, you're, then all of a sudden you're doing a job. Uh, what kind of breakdown do you see in terms of like the the average frequency that your users are are sending out their newsletters? Um, I think among the people that are making the most money, daily is the most common for for sort of all those reasons you say. And it it, kind of depends on the the subject matter. You know, if you're doing something that's kind of related to business or related to, you know, staying up to date being the most important thing, then daily is sort of a natural frequency for that. Uh, Whereas if you're doing something that's sort of comedy or entertainment or essays, which we also see you know, maybe doing once every week or something like that also makes sense. Uh, 
But the key is that whatever you do, it has to match the frequency of the content you're doing, and it has to be regular. You yeah. can't do this thing where it's like, oh, I'm going to do one issue, and then maybe three weeks later I do one, maybe whatever, whatever. Like, it, especially when people are paying for it, they do not, <laughs> they do not, they do not abide by that. It's true. I, when I started my newsletter, I just decided I wanted it to go out at 5 p.m. Pacific every day uh, so that I could sort of catch, like, basically Facebook employees at the end of their day. Like, because I feel like at 5 p.m., nobody really wants to work anymore. Right. So, you know, but they can't <laughs> leave the office quite yet. So here, why don't you just spend five minutes with this? Um, and, you know, also by that time of day, pretty much all the major news of the day has happened. But at the same time, I could kind of catch East Coast people as they were maybe, like, having dinner or, like, even maybe right. getting into bed a little early. Um, and I get mad at myself when I don't hit that deadline because, you know, I will all come in like 15 or 20 minutes late sometimes. Do you find it, do you find it exhausting? I do and I don't. I'll tell you, I mostly I find it invigorating because unlike writing a story on The Verge where the feedback I get tends to be very unpredictable, there's this rhythm now where I send out the newsletter, the responses start to come in, people share it on Twitter and say, hey, subscribe to this thing. I see the email addresses of the people who are signing up and it's either names I recognize or it's people signing up from Facebook, from Twitter, from Pinterest, from Google. These are the readers who... Maybe I've been reaching them before, but I didn't know that I was reaching them, and now I do. And so I sort of add all those things together, and there's something intoxicating about making this thing every day because that feedback is so intense. Right. So yes, putting it together is a ton of work, um, but... You know, I don't. I have to say, like, I grew up uh, as like a journalist in Chicago, where they have these tradition of daily newspaper columnists, right? Like the Mike Royko's, uh, the John Casses, and they would, you know, uh, hit B two of the Chicago Tribune every day with some sort of interesting observation about the world. Often they did have help. You know, they'd send some intern along with them to gather strength for some story. And, you know, part of me marveled at them as a journalism student because I went to Northwestern out there. But then part of me was like, that kind of seems like the coolest job in the world, right? You just, you sort of got to be the face of Chicago and tell Chicago what's interesting today. Uh, so obviously like, it's also an egomaniacal project, which suits <laughs> my personality. Um, but yeah, but so, you know, as I really started to get obsessed with how these social networks were affecting democracy, it's like, this is absolutely the best way to do it is to just try to understand the subject a little bit better every day and sort of tell people what you're thinking in real time and ask them for your feedback and like build a community. Yeah. And you have, you know, you have an incentive, you have incentives that align with your readers, especially if you're getting paid. You know, this is yeah. my, this, I'll keep beating this drum. Right. But, you know, that that problem that you have on social media where, you know, you're not the you're not the customer. The reader's not the customer. At the end of the day, the algorithm wants engagement at all costs, and you know it, the effects of that are all of these horrible things that that tear apart society and yada yada. You know you can fix that just by a little change in the rules. You can change the rules to say that hey, the, your incentive is to follow what the reader wants, whether that's feedback from getting nice email replies back, which is its own little dopamine hit and feels really good, or it's like, you know, another five bucks shows up in your bank account, which is also a pretty motivating, a pretty motivating feeling. And you're, you are now, you know, you're the, fa- if you're thinking you're the, you're the voice of a city, you're the, the voice of some type of news, you're doing a service for people. You're helping curate what they think about the world. 
and your incentive to do that is to is to make them better, yeah. is to give them what they actually want and need as their best selves, as their thing that they're choosing to subscribe to, not one more scroll while they're angry, you know, standing in line at Starbucks. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, you know, uh, something that I, I think about is somebody who listens to uh, Peter's podcast all the time, media, it is just a question of distribution, right? Like, there's a lot of great stuff out there. The only thing that matters is can you get it in front of people's eyes? And so something that I think is becoming more and more important to journalists in in particular, although I think it probably applies to anyone uh, in in a media business, is how do you build a sense of community where people sort of feel almost like a tribal belonging? And, you know, at a high level, you see this all the time. You know, people listen to the same sports call-in radio show, and it's like, you know, Bill from the Bronx or whatever calling to, like, weigh in in his thoughts. But people listen all the time, and they feel this sense of ownership, like, these are my people, even if they themselves are not the one calling in. You know, as journalists, we have not had great tools for that in the past. We would publish our stories in newspapers, and maybe a letter to the editor would show up. Right. Maybe the kind of local gadflies would call you up with, with give you a tip here or there. But when you're writing about these sort of global corporations and your potential audience is so much bigger, you need this new set of tools to give some shape around that community. Um, and I think that in, in some ways, like the, the email newsletter is just going to be kind of the tip of that spear. Yes, exactly. And that it's going to let you gather that community. But then over time, you're going to be able to do so much more. Right? And this is something that we've started to do. I mean, we put in you know, because you can always reply to an email newsletter and you get that dopamine rush. But something that we did pretty early on and we're still sort of actively working on is uh, we let you put comments. And for us, we did it so that only paying subscribers can comment, you know, A, because it's another way to get subscribers, which is good. But it also sort of solves this problem that you have on the internet in general of everything being a garbage fire all the time, right? Like if you are asking people, hey, pay five bucks a month and then you have the right to comment. First of all, that whole community, as you say, is more valuable now because it's filtered for the people who already really care about the stuff that you care about, right? So because, you know, if you, if, you, if you find someone that loves the exact same email newsletter that you do, you probably do have a lot in common with them. That's not an illusion. Like you actually probably are kind of kindred spirits. Yeah. And so being able to sort of filter for the for the group of people that have also like like shown this costly signal that shows they care about the thing and once you get there a lot of the just the, the default problems of internet garbage are fixed because you can absolutely moderate profitably if it's going to cost people five, ten bucks a time they want to come in and troll and be mean. And for the most part, people that, that are just trying to be jerks won't show up. And so you have this kind of, you get this effect where there's not as many comments, but the ones that are there, they're sort of these weird reservoirs of like friendliness and hope and lovely community <laughs> feeling that I can't remember feeling anywhere else recently on the internet. It does seem like a rare thing. There, there are a couple like sort of nicer forums on Reddit that that are essentially just internet comments from random strangers and these are not people who are paying and yet they bring me joy every day and whenever you encounter something like that it is a a moment that sort of builds your faith yeah and Uh, you can you can get that through sort of obscurity right you can get that through like just not being that well known but i think that as soon as you get that to a certain size it becomes kind of impossible to to maintain that feeling today's show is brought to you by mac weldon here's the one and only peter kafka to tell you more 
Today's show is brought to you by Mack Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. If you've listened to this show before, you know that I buy Mack Weldon products myself. I wear a lot of socks from them. Um, they're awesome. There's a line of silver underwear and shirts made from naturally antimicrobial fiber that actually eliminates odor. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping, and they are easy to buy. Go to MacWeldon.com. You'll get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If you don't like your first order, this is amazing. You just keep it. Mack Weldon will send you your money back. It means you get free clothes. But you'll like them. You'll keep them. Get 20% off at MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE so they know I sent you there. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. All right, so, so we have all these people now uh, out here who are putting together these email newsletters and selling them for up to $30 a month. You know, tr- traditionally, when you have this profusion of channels, someone eventually comes along and tries to sell a bundle. Is that going to happen with a system like this? I think that's probably eventually going to happen, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the first stage of this is kind of a, a de-aggregation, right? It's saying, I don't want to subscribe to one big combined thing. I want to subscribe to this one person that I really care about, and that's the sort of level of brand that I care about. But, you know, at some point in a future world when we're super successful and lots of people have this problem of like, oh, man, I don't want to subscribe to my ninth $5 a month email newsletter. Like, this is starting to add up to a lot of money, (laughs) which there's like 10 people that have that problem today. (laughs) And writers tend to be tend to be with some of those people. But eventually, you know, if as we as we sort of predict, this model becomes more and more popular, eventually you'll get to this world where bundle economics just are are incontrovertible, right? Like you can't, it, it won't make sense to not have some sort of bundling. And the way that I, we're so far away from having to worry about that. Like we have so many problems to solve before that even becomes, we have the right to sort of have that problem. But the thing that excites me about when we get there is the idea of doing it kind of bottom up rather than top down. So instead of saying, we're going to be the Netflix for email newsletters and we're going to try to sort of like force everyone to, to play by our rules to give writers the tools to sort of like self-federate mm. and start to form kind of like bundle alliances mm. where they can sort of like say like, I'm the I'm the writer about this, but here are the other writers that I love and that I gr- cross post with and we all support each other and we're kind of banding together to form a bundle that's going to be this good deal and take advantage of all these bundle economics. Like, that future is very exciting to me. Uh, I would love to think more about that world is going to look like. You know, I mean, as somebody who writes a, a newsletter that consists almost entirely of other people's journalism, in a way, I feel like I'm already sort of creating yeah, that bundle of curating. people. The, the, the same people show up on my newsletter time after time because there are only so many reporters on on the Facebook beat and, you know, a world in which some of those other people have their own newsletter. I mean, my gosh, like, I would love to promote those and, because, uh, you know, because yeah. everything winds up being in conversation with, with everything else there. Do you have other newsletters that you read and sort of swear by? Oh, 100%. Uh, I mean, so, you know, things out there that I would encourage people to try, um, you know, probably every single listener of uh, Code Media listens or uh, reads Ben Thompson. Um, uh, Matt Levine in Bloomberg <laughs> yeah. is another one yeah, who's yeah, amazing. Uh, he's been doing some, like, career-defining stuff on Elon Musk lately. Um, there's a guy named J.R. Raphael who uh, writes a newsletter about uh, Android once a week. And I'm an iOS person, but I just love that once a week I get kind of this deep dive into Android that lets me know how the other half lives. Um, so <laughs> So that's great. It's the only contact you have with the Android right. plebs. <laughs> yeah. Um, M.G. Siegler has started doing a newsletter, uh, and I've always loved M.G.'s blogging, but he's gotten interested in um, in newsletters, and so now I hear from him 
like once a week about some subject. And, you know, uh, I, I follow MG on Twitter and I would read most of his blog posts, but I would miss stuff. Now it all just yeah. like comes to my, my inbox. I don't have to think about it anymore. Awesome. So, These people uh, should all start Substacks, by the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, and I'm, I'm trying to think. Um, th- there is uh, at least one Substack that I know that I subscribe to. It's called Famous People and it's by two of my you former just, colleagues. No way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Kaylin Tiffany and Lizzie Plogic, uh, two of my <laughs> former coworkers, have started uh, a very funny, and I, th- and I think it's fair to say strange, newsletter yeah. about attending parties in New York yes. and about everything that happens uh, when they go to these parties. That's hilarious. I've, yeah. I've read that newsletter, and I'm yeah. so happy to have it on Substack. I can't believe <laughs> yeah. that's one of the ones that you know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, uh, you know, uh, they're both very talented writers. Famouspeople.substack.com. Um, well, there you go. You can go go and uh, check that out. Um, all right, so let's think a little bit bigger. You know, I think up until this point, most media companies, to the extent that they've thought about email at all, it's exclusively been as a marketing tool, right? It's like, you know, it, when you go to most media companies and you ask them what email tools they have, it's Campaign Monitor, it's MailChimp. It's something that was designed to get people to click on a 25% yeah. off coupon. I think of this as kind of the paradox of email is that it's such an effective way to reach people that it's been this, there's been this explosion of email marketing because it's so effective. <laughs> right. And so everybody thinks of email as this way to, you know, send deals instead of a way to actually reach people with editorial content. Right. So so what do media companies, like how should they start thinking about email right now? You know, I don't want to paint myself as any kind of an expert in what That's media literally the whole reason we invited you <laughs> here was to paint yourself as an expert. All right. Well, I'm I'm the world's, as a programmer, <laughs> I, sh- I, will, I will come and fix the media. No, that's actually, it's one of the reasons I'm so happy to be working with one of my co-founders, Hamish McKenzie, who's actually a, a real journalist and kind of like can tell, me about, can tell me about how all these things work. I will say that I think that email is a super powerful and underrated medium to reach people, especially for sort of the high value content that they opt in to specifically wanting. And our numbers say that given the choice, people really like to consume stuff in email. It's really tempting to say, oh, I'm going to send them kind of just like a little notification that tells them about something that I did so that they can come to my webpage and I'll serve them all the ads. But people, given their preference, especially on mobile, kind of like to just read things in their email. It's kind of this really simple, lovely experience. And so if you're a media company that has some needs that could be served by that kind of experience, I think it's worth investing some time into. Yeah, I mean, like, you think about how much angst a lot of us have had over the death of RSS. Right. Like, email really can meet that RSS need. Like, I see a world where there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to subscribe to every writer on the verge, like, via email if I wanted to. Say, just let me know the next time this person has a story, right? I also think that most um, media companies will eventually build email functionality into their content management systems, right? Like, you know, for now, we're happy to hire folks like you who are, uh, you know, (laughs) making really beautiful tools for this kind of thing. Um, But eventually, like, at some point, there will be some consolidation and media companies will buy these email distribution tools because they'll have found that, again, like, they want to cultivate community, too. They're they're just as tired of surfing the Facebook and Twitter and Google algorithms as anyone else. Oh, yeah. And if they had an owned audience that they could, like, reach with a high degree of accuracy every single day via email, why wouldn't they do that? That might be the only, literally the only way they can survive. Yeah, I mean, well, I think there'll probably, like, be multiple ways that they can survive, but, but do I think that, like, sustainable media looks like... Um, relationships that yeah. the 
media company owns with the customer? Yes. Do I think it involves some sort of direct contribution from reader? Yes. And do I think that it involves some kind of direct distribution to a human being? Right. Like, absolutely. Is it, is it 100% mediated by Facebook and Twitter? Probably not. Right. And in fact, I mean, you can now see, like, Facebook is going out of its way to tell journalists almost to give up, right? Like, at least in the sense of if you if your business was predicated on getting a lot of traffic referrals from Facebook, they've explicitly said give up. And, and you know, some businesses have, have gone belly up be, because of that. And, right? this is, and this is kind of a cycle. I mean, this isn't even the first time that Facebook has been through kind of a loop of like, all right, we're going to get all of this great high quality media. No, never mind. We're just about friends and family. Right. And any, you know, kind of any time that you're, the core of your business is based on sort of the whim of a big company that has different interests than you. Like that's a that's a tricky long term place to be. Right. Ultimately, the the interests were only ever aligned uh, so much. So uh, tell us what you are working on now. You sort of mentioned earlier you've had a lot of problems that you're trying to solve, and we should say like your company is like barely a year old, if that. Right. Yeah. We launched the first publication October last year. Okay. So it's it's still in the relatively early stages. So I'm sure there's like lots of basic blocking and, and tackling that you're doing, but sort of sketch a vision for me of, of where you're you're taking this thing. I think the biggest thing, the biggest, most important thing we want to do is just make this a great product for the readers and the writers who are sort of having this relationship with each other. And a lot of that is just kind of like the simple, unsexy, like, does the email show up? Does it look great everywhere? Is it awesome? Can I share it? Can I, you know, lots of like, can I buy a gift subscription for other people? Can my company buy a corporate subscription? There's lots of kind of just like basic stuff. It sounds like such a simple piece of software. Like, oh, you pay for some email. Like, I could build that in a weekend. It's trivial when sure. But like, there's there, there's a lot to sort of just like nailing the basics around having that work and being able to grow and make a lot of money when you're, when you're, uh, Content is good. You know, we 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 our business model is to take a cut of subscription revenue. So we literally only succeed if the writers are making a lot of money. And so we have every incentive to kind of like continue to build those features that keep the readers loving it and keep them telling their friends and letting their friends find out about it, yada yada. Beyond that, the stuff that's fascinating to me is the stuff about community features, right? This idea of you know, what? what is a publication in this world? You know, today you can describe it as it's paid email newsletters, but I actually think, as you said, it's sort of the tip of the iceberg. And the ways that the readers can interact with the writer and feel like they sort of like have that, a, a bi-directional relationship there, and the ways that the readers can interact with each other, I think, are where a lot of the value comes from at the end of the day. It's going to be about, you know, do I feel like I'm part of something? Do I feel like I'm you know, I get to be, a, I get to, I get to have this sort of relationship that that makes me better, and that I, you know, all of this stuff. And so, nailing the nailing the sort of community aspect of it feels feels very important to me. And then the other thing that's interesting in sort of like the medium to long term is, you know, are there other mediums that this works for? Mm. You, know, you talked about podcasting. I'm a big believer that at some, there's a lot of people trying to do it. At some point, someone's going to figure out how to do paid podcasting right, mm -hmm. and that's going to be a massive, a massive industry. Right, and so you'll have maybe more than one medium that you can tackle. We've got plenty to do in the meantime. Chris Best is the CEO, co-founder of Substack. You can check it out at substack.com. And if you want to know what I've been raving about for this entire episode, you can go to <laughs> theverge.com slash interface and uh, sample what I've been doing over there. But in the meantime, Chris, thanks so much for coming by the podcast. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you, Chris, again, for coming on the podcast. And thanks to all of you for listening to me fill in for Peter. And you know, as Peter always says, please tell someone about this show. You can tell them in person, you can tweet about it, or you can just call random phone numbers to spread the good word. And while you're at it, there's another podcast you can tell people about. It's called Converge. Maybe you should listen to it before you tell people about it, but you should definitely listen to it and definitely tell people about it. You can find it wherever podcasts are sold. Just search uh, Converge with Casey Newton. We just finished our first season. We had 12 amazing guests. It's kind of like this show, but it's also a game show. What does that mean? There's only one way to find out. You've got to go listen. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to Cadence 13 and Vox Media. They sell those ads so that you can listen to Recode Media absolutely for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show, and to our producers, Gold Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week. Hi, it's uh, Matt Iglesias. I'm Dara Lind. Ezra Klein. We're the hosts of The Weeds from Vox.com. We're taking a deep dive into the policy decisions that shape the political landscape that you see from day to day. People always like to say you, you don't want to get into the weeds. This is a podcast for people who do like to get into the weeds, who follow politics because they care about healthcare, about economics, about zoning, about inequality, about the actual underlying issues. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to get into the weeds because that's where all the policy happens. And that's the things that change people's lives. You can find more information about us at vox.com slash the weeds. Catch new episodes every Tuesday and Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the show. And be sure to subscribe to the show to never, ever, under any circumstances, miss an episode. Yeah, if you miss even one, we'll be very sad. <laughs>